If you will, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4 speaks of this very idea of our giving our lives for the sake of others and suffering potentially as a result. I started last Lord's Day to give you a sense of this wonderful passage of First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Let me read it again in your hearing. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, I told you last time that there were four great realities that are connected with this passage that can speak to us as powerfully as Peter first wrote these words to the first century Christians. You remember I said last time that there are four great because realities. Each one of these four outline points that I give you start with the word because and make a declarative statement or a principle that speaks to us of our response to God based on the salvation that He has given us in Christ, especially in the context of suffering. You remember the first great because reality? It is this, verse 1. Because Jesus Christ suffered, Christians also will suffer. Therefore, arm yourself for the battle. Look at what Peter says in verse 1. Since Christ, therefore, has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, or as I said last time, the same mentality. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Notice the verbal idea there, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. The idea is, since Jesus Christ suffered, suffered in his earthly life, especially in those events leading directly up to the cross and certainly including the cross, 
was a suffering in the flesh. That means in the earthly life and ministry which he experienced. And since Christ suffered in that way, Peter says, arm yourselves also with the same mentality. The same mentality as Christ. For you understand, he says, that if you do so, here's that because, because he who has suffered in the flesh, whether that's referring to Christ himself or the one who has become a Christian, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Remember I said to you last time that that particular phrase, while provocative, has ceased from sin, means nothing more than this. The vice grip of sin has been broken in your life if you have come to faith in Christ. You don't have to to sin as a pattern, as a characteristic in your life anymore. Christ has delivered you from the dominion, the power of, the paralyzing force of sin, and if you suffer in your earthly existence like He suffered in His earthly existence, you have ceased from sin. His atonement has allowed you to see a powerful break with sin in your life. And if you have that mentality, if you think those kinds of thoughts, and if you look at the life of Christ and follow His example as He suffered always entrusting himself to God who judges righteously, then you're going to have the same mentality or the same purpose that Christ had. And Peter says that's a great because reality. Because if you suffer in your earthly existence, that means that you've seen a powerful break with sin. You don't have to sin anymore as a pattern or as an example in your life. You say no to sin. Secondly, the second great because reality that Peter gives us is marvelous. And it follows right on the heels of the first one. The second one is this. Because God's will is holiness for you, you must therefore then see your lifestyle of sinfulness as clearly past. Because Peter says in chapter 1, verse 15, God wants you to be holy because He is holy. And if that's His will for you, then therefore you must see, according to verses 2 and 3 of 1 Peter 4, your lifestyle of sinfulness as clearly past. Notice what he says. So as to live the rest of the time, that is the rest of your time on earth, in the flesh, that means in your earthly existence, notice this, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Peter gives a great contrast. It's a black and white reality. You have two choices in this earthly existence, in the the flesh, in this life. You can serve the lusts of men or you can serve the will of God. There are only those two things. And he says, if you have seen the vice grip of sin broken in your life, you can so live your life the rest of your time on this earth no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. And in verse 3 he even says, I'm going to detail for you the very things that used to characterize you when you were serving the lusts of men. 
And he says, for the time already past is sufficient. That means it is way beyond the time for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles or the pagans or the non-Christians or the people who don't know Jesus. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And he says, since it is God's will for you, the will of God is your holiness. You ought to see that kind of lifestyle as clearly past in your life. And that's a, that's a great question. It's not only a great because reality, it's a great question. Is this the reality of your life? Because you recognize the will of God as your holiness, do you see then the sinful lifestyle of your past as clearly past? You see that. Or do you still battle with sin to the degree that you cannot say no to it? Peter says if you're pursuing the holiness of God, His will for you, you're going to see that lifestyle as clearly something in the past. You're not going to be pursuing a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And there he just gives a representative list of the things that, that characterize non-Christians. Oh, it may not characterize every single non-Christian, but in the main, in the whole, on the average, that's the way non-Christians live, in the lusts of their flesh. And he says, that's not you, Christian. That's not you. You have seen a decisive break with sin, and you've seen the opportunity to follow the will of God so as to live the rest of your time on this earth no longer serving yourself but serving the will of God. You're a holy person. You're pursuing holiness in your life. You're not doing the things that are characterized there. It's not your present course of action. You've seen a break with it. And that's what brings us up to now points three and four of these great because realities. Listen to number three. Because Christians used to live like non-Christians, don't be surprised at non-Christians' criticism of you. I'll say it again. It's very, very important. Verses 4 and 5 of this particular chapter tell us in unmistakable language that because you, as a new creation in Christ, used to live like the non-Christians who were around you, but now that you've come to Christ, don't be surprised at their criticisms of you. This is another great because reality. Because you have become new creation in Christ... Don't be surprised at the reaction of non-Christians about your new life in Christ. Don't be surprised at all. Don't be surprised when your former running buddies malign you. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. In all this, what is all this? In all of this that I've just said to you in these first three verses, in all of this, including what you used to do and now what you're no longer characterized as being, in all this, they, that is non-Christians, the Gentiles, the pagans, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." 
You see, beloved, if you have been delivered from these characteristic sins in your life, then you mark it down. Some of your former running buddies will be surprised. And maybe that's not the best word to translate that idea. Maybe it's not they are surprised. Maybe it's rather they're put off. They're put off. Maybe even this, they're offended. They're offended because there has been an estrangement. In fact, that's the very word for surprised, estranged. You have an estranged relationship. You don't relate to each other like you once did. And this is the first thing that Peter says here. They who are now estranged from you because of your new commitment to Jesus Christ, they desire that you run with them into the same stuff that you did before. But you don't do that anymore. You've been delivered from that. You can say no to that because of the Spirit of God being operative in your life. For the first time in your life, you can actually say no to the power of sin in your life. You're not walking that course of action anymore. You're not pursuing that kind of lifestyle. And you can say no to that sin. But guess what? You can't go completely out of the world. You have to still interact with those around you. And when you do, they are offended. They're put off that you don't want to run with them anymore into, notice what he says, the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. This word, excess, very interesting. Anacusis. It means an outpouring. It's a flood. In fact, I think even in the New International Version translation, it says the same flood of dissipation, right? The same flood. It's, it's the idea, this excess, like it's, a, like it's a gushing river of sin. Like it's a, a wide open stream of idolatry and sinfulness. You see that word picture in your mind? Think of lusts, verse 3, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And think of it like a flood of sins coming at you. And the people who are committed to those kinds of sins, they're put off, they're offended that you won't continue to join up with them in the same excesses, the same wide open stream of sinfulness. I said last time, when I think of this lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, I think of something like Mardi Gras. And can you imagine the filth and the trash and the litter of a place like Bourbon Street after Mardi Gras is over? It seems to me that you can make a great analogy that if someone were to turn on a huge hose and try to clean out that street, it would be the same kind of thing metaphorically. All of this, this excesses of sinfulness like an open gusher of filth running down the street. And that's what Peter is telling us. That's the word picture here. They're put off. They're surprised that you don't run with them. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? You don't run. That's probably where we came up with the idea, you're running buddies. And they're offended that you don't go off running with them again into the same wide open stream. What kind of wide open stream. He says the same excesses of dissipation. 
you'll be very interested to know that this is the word asotia. You know that word sotia or soteria or sozo? That's the word for salvation. And what happens when you put an A on the front of it, that little alpha privative, it negates the word. Like we say atheist, that means someone who doesn't believe in God. Agnostic, someone who doesn't know if there can be a God in existence or not. Asotia, someone who does not believe in the wholeness or affirm the wholeness or completeness of salvation. That's that word. That's the word that's translated, at least in my NASB, as dissipation. Asotia. It's the opposite of salvation. It's the opposite of wholeness. It's the opposite of everything that is right and pure and lovely. It's the same wide open stream of utter sinfulness lacking any salvific activity. By the way, that's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses In Ephesians 5.18 when he says this, interesting context in light of some of these words used here for drunkenness, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, all three of those in some sense meaning some level of drunkenness. In Ephesians 5.18 the Apostle Paul says, do not be drunk with wine for that is asotia. That's the opposite of everything that a Christian is all about. Everything that is opposite of the wholeness of Christianity. Everything that is opposite of the fine, pure, holy truth of Christianity. It's everything else but. It's dissipation. It's excess. It's everything in the other direction. And he contrasts it there, does Paul in Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is excess, that's dissipation, that's asotia. But be controlled by or with the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Again, two black and white contrasts. You're drunk, you live a life of drunkenness, you allow wine to control you, you allow wine to empower you. That's one choice that a person could make and the other is but be controlled in fact be being kept controlled that's the sense of the verb be being kept filled with the holy spirit those are the two contrasts those are the two choices a person who wants to live his life as controlled by himself and his own desires and his own lusts or a person who desires to be filled, controlled, led, energized, empowered by the Spirit of God. And Peter gives us the very same contrast here. You really only have two choices in life. It is the desire of the Gentiles, the desire of man, the lust of man, or the pursuit of the will of God. And the lusts of men is a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries, which means I'm serving all kinds of other gods and not the true God, even the God of myself, or I'm serving the will of God. I'm reading the Word of God. I'm applying the truth of God. I'm serving the people of God. And I'm energized by the Spirit of God. Those are the two choices. And he says, if you have suffered in the flesh, 
implied you've suffered like Christ suffered. You've seen His example as your example. You'll have the same mentality and you won't want to live the rest of your time in this earthly existence for the lusts of yourself, but for the will of God. And you'll say no to all those characteristic sins and you'll say yes to God. And when you say yes to God, you still have those people in your life who are saying about you and to you, but wait a minute. You used to run with us. You used to do this same thing with us. What gives? You used to be involved with us. Do you think you're holier than thou? What gives? You think you're better than us? And what Peter says will be the result. Look at the end of verse 4. And they malign you. Folks, it is a guilt edge guarantee that if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul to Timothy, you will suffer what? Persecution. It's going to happen in some way or another. And it may not be the worst thing you could do. It may not be that you're suffering physically like so many of these no doubt were. But it can be and will be that in some way with especially running buddies of the past... You will say, I don't do that anymore, and you will be maligned. You'll be slandered. By the way, that word there, they malign you, it's actually the word for blaspheme. They they will blaspheme you. They will slander you. They will speak evil of you. That's why Peter, by the way, in 1 Peter makes a very, very important point in several places when he says, if you suffer implied, if it happens, then I want you to know that you must suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You don't want to be on the opposite side of suffering for the things that you're doing in your sin that brings on the suffering. If you suffer, Peter wants you to know that your suffering must be a righteous suffering. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. He makes this point very clear. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, the pagans, the non-Christians, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You want to make sure that when you're slandered or you're blasphemed, it is because you're doing what is right rather than what is wrong. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. We're going to come to it shortly. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, a Christ follower, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. What am I saying? 
Well, if you suffer, make sure that you're criticized for people who might say something like this. Oh, how I hate your God because you remind me so much of him. You want, if you're going to suffer, that's the way you want to suffer. If you suffer. If God should will it so, if that's the way you're going to respond, you want to be able to have people say, I hate you and I hate your God because you remind me so much of your God. And they'll malign you. They'll speak evil of you. They'll defame you. They'll slander you. That's why I said a moment ago it's probably best to see that word surprise not as we normally understand it. They're surprised. They're shocked. It's really not that. It's that estrangement idea. It's that they're put off. They can clearly see a difference. They're offended about the fact that you don't run with them anymore and they want to make life tough for you now, slandering your character, speaking falsely about you, maligning your judgments. And as I said, they may even want to say, oh, you call yourself a Christian now. And it may be that if you do sin in their presence, they might even want to dredge that up and say, oh, I thought you said you were different. appears to me that based on what you just did, you're no different than anybody else. You're no different than me. You're no different than us, your running buddies. And I guess it would be appropriate at this point to ask you the question, have you ever had anyone malign or blaspheme your character as a Christian? If not, you should have. Somebody, somewhere, saying, I knew you then and I know you now and I don't like you now. For which you say in your own heart, praise God. Praise God. If you are not suffering or being slandered or being blasphemed or being criticized in some way for your testimony of Christ, then you ought to check yourself. Now, that doesn't mean being judgmental, unloving, unkind. It doesn't mean that you're asking for it. It's just that you're living your life for Christ and you're making choices in your life for Christ and inevitably those choices of your life with Christ will bring you cross-grain with the world. Whether it's in your job or your school or maybe even for some of you in your home or certainly out in society to some degree and at some level you're saying, I won't do that. I won't live that way. I'm going to make a choice to walk away from that. And it may very well be that someone says about you, Hey, look, you think you're holy. You think you're righteous. You think you're better than we are. I know you. I know what you used to do. And you might be able at that point to say, Yes, I used to do those things. That's what characterized me before. But now I live not for the lusts of men, verse 2, but for the will of God. I live for His will. And by the way, we have... Very, very little idea of what these first century Christians really experienced. And that's obviously the primary group that Peter's writing to. We have to, we have to sift it through the grid of our own thinking and our own culture and our own society. And it's not every day that someone comes us, up to us and says, I don't like your Christianity. I don't like you. You're going to jail. You're going to pay the price. There are consequences for your actions, fella. We don't have that regularly. We don't know what they really went through and the power of Peter's words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that would have been a balm in the sores of these Christians. Peter Davids says of them, this 
these first century Christians. All of this rejection was certainly painful, especially when it came in the form of rumors they could not correct and ostracism from former friends and colleagues. We don't know a lot about ostracism. We don't know a lot about family forsaking us. We don't know a lot about not being able to correct the rumors about us and our Christianity, but they did. And it's very true that when that culture said, I'm offended by you, I'm estranged by you, there would have been intense persecution on these Christians. Can you imagine a whole family of pagan people and one of those family members comes out of that paganism into Christianity? Intense persecution. Paul Actemeyer says this, very helpful, very insightful. Listen to carefully. The problem for Christians, this is first century, the problem for Christians consisted in the fact that their new way of life no longer allowed than the kind of full participation in the religio-cultural activities that was expected of all people living within the Roman Empire. A participation they had enjoyed prior to their conversion. Such participation was impossible principally because every public festival involved to one extent or another religious activities that Christians could only regard as idolatry. And in avoiding that, the Christians were of necessity forced into almost total cultural non-participation. In addition, veneration of the emperor had spread widely, particularly in Asia Minor, and where it existed, participation in it was expected of all residents. It was just expected of everybody. That was the way of life. It was regarded as a display of loyalty to Rome, and non-participation thus raised the specter of treason. Against that background, this verse is a further description of the kind of exiles and aliens, chapter 2, verses, verse 11. Christians had become within their own society not so much as a political threat as a social threat. Christians were seen as aloof, secretive, and socially indigestible. They just couldn't be stomached. Living in a society that put religiously impossible demands on the Christians, they could only remain apart, opening themselves to the kind of social ostracism and unpopularity that devolved upon all who upset customary ways. Such isolation could and did lead to persecution. I mean, they had everything in their society against them. You name the name of Jesus Christ, and as I said before, you went down to the river with the other body of believers that you were associating with, and you went under those waters of baptism to profess your allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord and not to the Roman emperor as Lord. And it could very well be that as soon as that head came up out of the water, folks would come out of the forest and take you away, and you would never, ever see your family again. And you might be persecuted, you might be physically assaulted, you might be in prison, you might be killed. We don't know much about that at all. In fact, we say today, well, you know, our society, it just, uh, you know, there's some elements of it that's not, not real good. You want to go to a movie? You know, there are parts of our society that really are not helpful, but, you know, we can work around it. You know, there are parts of our society that, that seem antithetical to Christianity, but by and large, we can get along with these people. That's not so in that culture. 
You couldn't go to a religious festival. You couldn't walk down the street. And you were required to declare your allegiance to the emperor. And if you did not do so, you were branded. There's one of those Christians. Get them. You realize that back during these times, the emperor was seen as a god and was therefore to be venerated, worshipped. Gaius Caligula had claimed divine majesty. He was one of the emperors, Caligula. He was a terrible, despotic, ugly, immoral man. The emperor Vespasian had declared on his deathbed that he had become a god, which I would say is fairly ironic to declare on your deathbed. The emperor Domitian wanted people to address him this way, our Lord and our God. Fairly lofty title, wouldn't you say? There were emperors, leaders, kings, and those in authority in that country that if you didn't bow down to them literally and metaphorically, you would be in serious trouble. But remember, these band of faithful believers, these lovely Christians who realized they could very much suffer for the cause of Christ, they were going to respond to that. And they did. And listen to some of the impact. I'm not going to list everything. I'll just list one quote from you. Listen to the impact when Christians came together and said no to the culture, even in the face of great criticism and slander and defamation and blaspheming. Listen to this. The historian Pliny notes that where Christians were numerous, temples were deserted, sacred festivals were no longer observed, sacrificial animals were no longer purchased. That's the impact of a culture saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to compromise. Jesus is Lord. Another historian reported that Christians are chided for, quote, refraining from proper pleasure, unquote, under which are included attending the theater, taking part in processions, public banquets, sacred games, and food and drink offered to the gods. Tertullian admits he does not participate in such festivals, does not wear a garland on his head, does not attend games, and does not buy incense for sacrifice, nor do Christians cover doorposts with laurels, nor light lamps for festivals. The more the Christian communities consolidated themselves, the more they will have been obvious in their anti-social behavior. Hey, they were standing against the culture just by virtue of being a Christian. I love what Edmund Clowney likewise writes. He says this, They had been Gentile pagans, wild drinking parties, sexual perversion, idolatrous cults. They had drowned in that flood of dissipation. But they now knew a better way, a way that their scornful friends could not imagine. Fervent love of brothers and sisters in Christ had replaced lust. Alert awareness of the times had replaced drunken stupor. But above all, the joyful adoration of the risen Lord had replaced the folly of idolatry. How different the will of God now seems. Once it loomed like a dark prison, curbing our desires, threatening our freedom to do as we pleased. Now we find that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. The law of love is the law of liberty. You see, they recognized that there was a cost to their commitment to Jesus Christ, but they were willing to experience that cost, whatever, for the sake of being salt and light in their culture. And please don't forget Jesus' words. Remember what He said in Matthew 5? 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's going to be a part. It's going to be a part of existence. And please don't miss what Peter says in verse 5. They, that is, those non-Christians who malign you, who slander you, who blaspheme you and your God, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Boy, they needed that encouragement. You say, that's encouragement? Oh, yes, it is. If you're undergoing that intense persecution and suffering, you want to know that your God is in charge and your God will right all wrongs. It was wrong to kill these Christians. It was wrong to malign them. It was wrong to slander them. Is there any justice? Is there any justice in the world? Is anybody in charge? Where is God in all of this? Isn't that a common question? Where is God with all of the evil in this world? God, I'm suffering. Where are you? They will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And by the way, the Him there, Christ. Christ. God the Father, it says in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. 2 Timothy 4, 1. Romans 14, 9. He has given judgment to the Son. Jesus Christ, according to chapter 3, verse 22, is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. He's in charge. He's the judge. He's the ultimate judge. And it says He will judge the living and the dead. Those who are living at the time that was written and those who will die at the time that is written. And, of course, for all time. They will give an account. By the way, that's a legal term. They will be brought to the bar of the court of God's bench to give an account. And I couldn't help but notice, they'll give an account according to chapter 4, verse 5, and we also are to give an account according to chapter 3, verse 15. We are to give an account for the hope that is in us with gentleness and reverence, and when they malign and slander, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Ask yourself the question, do I suffer in this way? Do I suffer criticism? Do I suffer slander? Do people talk about my faith in Christ? Do they even know about my faith in Christ? Do they, do they even know I'm a Christian? Or would they be surprised that I even name Christ? I mean, surely somewhere down the road, I, as an act of love and obedience to Jesus Christ, will be criticized from somebody. And that leads right into that fourth because. Look at verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. What's the great because reality there? It is this. Because of God's ultimate judgment of sinful men, according to verse 5, rejoice in the good news of your own salvation. That's the great because reality there. 
For the gospel, the good news, the good news of salvation in Christ has for this purpose. What purpose? The purpose of the eventual judgment of the living and the dead. It's been preached. It's been heralded. It's been proclaimed. To whom? Even to those who are dead. What does that mean? Well, I hate to tell you, but even though we've been going through some really difficult passages in 1 Peter lately, this is another one. This is another one. Who are the dead there? Well, some people say, and you can take about five or six interpretations of that particular phrase, and I think you could reduce it down to two possibilities. One is that the gospel, the good news, has for the purpose of avoiding judgment been preached even to those who are dead, that is, the physically dead. It was preached to them, the good news, they embraced it, they came to faith in Christ, they repented, they turned from their Gentile lifestyle, they followed Jesus Christ as Lord, and maybe even as a result of persecution for their faith, they were killed. Or at the very least, they died, maybe not suffering directly for their faith, but these are saved people. They have physically died, and that though they are judged in this earthly existence as men, that is, as a man, a man and or a woman, a, a person, they may live in the Spirit. They may have experienced ultimately the opportunity for resurrection. That could be what this means. It's really talking about someone who has physically died prior to the return of Christ because they had the gospel preached to them, maybe dying as a result of persecution, but they will live. They will live spiritually. Or it could mean someone who is spiritually dead, who had the gospel preached to them, and they came alive spiritually from the dead, and now they're living according to the Spirit, according to the will of God. Really, I see some level of difference, but not a lot. It's either someone who came to faith in Christ, died as a result of their faith, and are living now, even though they don't have their bodies, the resurrection is going to come, but they're living according to the Spirit of God, according to the will of God, and they will one day receive joyously, uh, in a glorifying way, their resurrection body, and they'll be reunited, their souls and their bodies, and they will then live forever and ever and ever according to the will of God. Or, those who are spiritually dead, as all of us were, and had the gospel preached to us, and now we've been resurrected spiritually to new life from the dead, so that we might live according to the will of the Spirit, according to the will of God. You say, what particular interpretation do you hold? Well, I think it's probably those, maybe both by way of the context, because we're talking about suffering and maligning and slandering, it's probably that those who had the gospel preached to them, started living boldly for Christ, and then died for Christ. They physically died. And that even though they were judged in the flesh as men, that means that they were men as men are, souls and bodies, but they are not just that now. They may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. They were brought to new life in Christ and they gave their lives for Christ, and now they are dead 
dead at least in the sense of their physical bodies being racked with suffering and persecution. That's what I think it probably means. Those who died physically. Now it's of course true that those who died physically were once also dead spiritually. But I think according to verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That dead there in verse 5 obviously means the physically dead. And they will also be judged. And so I think in verse 6, those who are dead are also speaking of those who physically died. What's the point? The point is this. You as a person living in this life, living in the flesh, that means you have an earthly existence as a man, as a woman. You were living the course of this sensuality. God was so pleased to give you the message of the good news, the gospel, and for the very purpose of avoiding the one for whom we will one day stand, Jesus Christ. He has given you His life. It was preached to you. And as a result, you came to faith in Christ. And now, because of your strong stand for Christ, you give up your life. You're going to be killed. I think that fits very well with the context of what Peter's saying. You're going to die, some of you. And, and don't look around you, and he'll say this later, don't look around you as though some strange thing were happening to you. You stand for Jesus Christ, and you could die. And if you die, don't worry. You're going to live spiritually forever and ever and ever and ever. Oh, what an encouragement. What a profound encouragement. Can you imagine some of these Christians being martyred? And they want some kind of assurance. Maybe... Maybe it's that they themselves are not suffering, or maybe they're suffering, but they haven't suffered to the point of death, but their loved one has. Maybe they've lost a loved one. Maybe their wife has been taken away, their husband, their mom, their dad, their sister, their brother. Someone in their family has died as a result of their faith. And Peter comes along and says, but wait, the gospel has been preached For the very purpose of avoiding the judgment that all will undergo. And this good news was given to them. And even when it was given to them, it seals them forever and ever spiritually. They're going to live according to the Spirit forever and ever according to the will of God. Even though they are dead, you can have great comfort. They're alive. Isn't that what we say at a funeral? We say that body that's in that coffin right there, that's not that person totally. At the moment of death, their spirit leaves that body and they, if they are believers in Jesus Christ, affirm the gospel, they are living even as they are dead. Boy, that would be a tremendous encouragement. You say, well, what does all of this have to do with me if I'm not suffering in this world? Well, as I said, you may suffer some and you should, not for your own sin, but for doing what is right. But did you realize that there are people, and I was so thrilled to be able to to hear of these people who are committing themselves, like Kirk and Jennifer Perrette and Amy Lapine and Patrick Howell and all of the people who are involved in the worldwide enterprise of missionary service. Do you realize that when people go to other places and they witness other Christians and how they're experiencing great 
temptation, great suffering, great persecution, that it's real and it's happening not simply in the first century but in the 21st century. It's happening, folks. We can no longer assume that the same kinds of things that are happening to these first century Christians are not happening today. They are. They are. I brought up to the pulpit this morning a a wonderful book called Their Blood Cries Out by Paul Marshall. I think I mentioned it last week. You ought to read this book. It It will help change your life. He's written another book called Religious Freedom in the World, a global report on freedom and persecution. You ought to read that. You ought to look at some of the things that are talked about in Operation World by Patrick Johnstone. Be able to pray together either as a family or as an individual about what's happening in our world and to be aware of the fact that there are things happening now where Christians are being killed every day. Every day. I wish I could read some of these stories to you that are full and complete. Listen to one of them. All of us, this is coming from the Cuban poet Armando Valladeras. It's his account of his 22 years in prison under Castro's regime. This is what he says. All of us called Gerardo the brother of the faith. His sermons had a primitive beauty. He himself had an extraordinary magnetism. From a pulpit improvised from old salt codfish boxes covered with a sheet behind a simple cross, the thundering voice of the brother of the faith would preach his daily sermons. I love that, the brother of the faith. Then we would all sing hymns he wrote out on cigarette packages and passed out to those of us at the meeting. These are all people incarcerated. Many times the garrison broke up those minutes of prayer with blows and kicks, but they never managed to intimidate him. When they took him off to the forced labor fields of Isle de Pinos, he organized Bible readings and choirs. Having a Bible was a subversive act, but he had, we never knew how, a little one which he always carried with him. If some exhausted or sick prisoner fell behind in the furrows or hadn't piled up the amount of rock he had been ordered to break, the brother of the faith would turn up. He was thin and wiry with incredible stamina for physical labor. He would catch the other man up in his work, save him from brutal beatings. When one of the guards would walk up behind him and hit him, the brother of the faith would spring erect, look into the guard's eyes and say to him, May God pardon you. In the midst of that apocalyptic vision of the most dreadful and horrifying moments in my life, Vyaderas says, in the midst of the gray, ashy dust and the orgy of beatings and blood, prisoners beaten to the ground, a man emerged, the skeletal figure of a man wasted by hunger, with white hair, blazing blue eyes, and a heart overflowing with love, raising his arms to the invisible heaven and pleading for mercy for his executioners. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That was his cry. And a burst of machine gun fire ripping open his breast. In China, March 1993, five Protestants from Shanghai were detained and severely tortured without a word of explanation. They were singled out because the authorities suspected them of contact with foreigners. According to an eyewitness account, the officers stripped three brethren naked from the waist and forced the women to stand with them. Not only did they beat them, moreover, they forced each of the 26 other local people to beat each one with a hundred times with bamboo rods. 
If they refused, they would in turn be beaten. The three men were beaten until they were totally covered with blood and gaping wounds and injuries all over their bodies. And if such violent beating wasn't enough, the officers then hung them up and began to hit them with the rods on their backs. They did this until the three men were unconscious and barely breathing. We could only hear the sound of the beating and the cursing of the officers. And then listen to this last one as we close. This is, this is unthinkable. Mark Danner, reporting in the New Yorker. This is our, one of our own country's papers, a very prominent paper, the New Yorker. December 6, 1993. These are all prime examples, 20 and 21st century. Page 87, describing the army's reaction to a Christian girl from El Mazote. There was one in particular the soldiers talked about that evening. A girl on La Cruz whom they had raped many times during the course of the afternoon and through it all while the other women of El Mazote had screamed and cried as if they had never had a man. This girl had sung hymns, strange evangelical songs and she had kept right on singing too even after they had done what had to be done and shot her in the chest. She had lain there on La Cruz with the blood flowing from her chest and had kept on singing, a bit weaker than before, but still singing. And the soldiers, stupefied, had watched and pointed. Then they had grown tired of the game and shot her again, and she sang still. And their wonder began to turn to fear until finally they had unsheathed their machetes and hacked through her neck and at last, the singing had stopped. 1993. It's happening in our world. That's why we need to pray for the persecuted church. Pray for those martyred. Pray for those who are standing strong for Jesus Christ. And would be, if God should will it so, that we should go and minister to people just like that. Let's pray together. Father, these are but few examples of the kinds of people within the body of Christ who are suffering even now because they refuse not to give allegiance to our Lord. They are to be seen as worthy to suffer for your sake. And Lord, even though we in our comfortable Western Christianity see very little of this. It catapults our minds and our hearts into praying for those workers to go out into the harvest and to pray for those who are presently being persecuted wherever it may be. Lord, we've seen the violent attacks of Islam upon those that they see as Christian. And we ask, would you, Lord, would you allow us the privilege of going and standing for Christ, even if it means death? We, too, would want to sing strange evangelical songs, even in the midst of our own death. Lord, I pray that people in our own church would say, yes, I want to go. I want to go to Vietnam. I want to go to Laos. I want to go to Sudan. I want to go to these countries. I want to go to India. I want to go to Pakistan. 
I want to go to Iraq and Iran. Lord, You work through the details so that I may be a proclaimer of this good news. And if I or those around me who have come to faith in Christ die, it is only that we may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Lord, that's our prayer. May You send out many from our midst. And for those who remain, may they give generously and sacrificially for the cause so that we might see salvation through suffering. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.